I invite you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Chapter 6. Boy, are we moving or what? We just intro Deuteronomy last week. The title of Deuteronomy is a little misleading. Deuteronomy meaning a second law, Deuteronomium. It's not what it means. The original Hebrew is Debarim, which means words. So the title of Deuteronomy is Words. The theme of Deuteronomy, before I get there, the key word of Deuteronomy is, is heart. It's heart. Over and over, it's about getting his words on our hearts. And then the, uh, the theme of Deuteronomy, amazingly enough, is love. I'd like to start this morning by conducting a hearing test. I'd like to ask you all to stand up with your Bibles in hand, open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We'll all stand together. I'd like you to read this with me. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Read with me. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Let's say that one more time. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These verses are the same Shema in the Hebrew, the Shema. A Jewish person would know right off the bat exactly what I was talking about. If you say to them, Shema, what is the Shema? They could quote this verse. This is a key verse, a central verse in Judaism. The Shema. Shema simply means hear. And the key to conducting a hearing test in our spiritual lives is hearing that the Lord desires relationship with us. That He desires love. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord. Not follow the precepts, although He says that. Not obey the commandments, although that's part of the deal. The bottom line is love. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now I'm going to read a bit further this morning. Go ahead and sit down. Beginning in verse 6, and you can just follow along as I read. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. Verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Skip now over to chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. 
Continuing on, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3. He humbled you, and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You may have noticed some familiarities in these verses as we read through them as though you've heard them somewhere before, maybe spoken by someone else, and it's likely that you have. Because Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 13 and 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 are the direct verbal responses of Jesus to the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. This is the book Jesus was quoting from. And remember, we said last week, of all the books of the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus quoted the book of Deuteronomy more than any other. As we get into this book, I would think that would be a great motivation to be studying this word for word, verse by verse, going through Deuteronomy. This is Jesus' favorite book. His most quoted. Well, it just so happens these verses were immediately available in Jesus' arsenal when Satan came out swinging. And we're going to look at this and consider these things this morning. But first, let's pray again. Father, we ask for your blessing on these words. These devarim, that they might be your words. And might pierce us in our hearts, find their way deep within, and nestle themselves within. That we might have your word hidden in our heart, just, just as Jesus did. Though he was the Word incarnate as he walked in human flesh, though he is the Word even today as he commands authority from heaven, Lord, that your Word would be in our hearts like your Word rested in Jesus' heart. That we might be able to call up in times of distress and struggle and temptation, Lord, we might be able to call up your Word as a sword to swing it high and mightily above our head to crush the attempt of the enemy to entice and incite and seduce us that we might grow strong in you. Father, give us your words this morning and teach us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want you to consider something this morning. Aside from the primary and obvious act of buying our redemption on the cross, why did God choose to become flesh and dwell among us? The cross is primary. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. But there's a secondary reason, nearly as important, not quite as important. A secondary reason why Jesus chose, why God chose, to enflesh himself, to put on, as it were, an earth suit, and live and walk among us. Why would he do that? John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Explain him. You Bible students know the word explain there is exegeomai in the Greek. It's where we get our word exegesis. That's a word that if you happen to be a, a real student of the word or a teacher, you know about exegesis. To exegete a passage means to study it to the hilt, to work through it, to understand it, to get it explained. What I have to do in study before coming in here on a Sunday is to exegete a passage. So that by exegeting it, I completely can understand it. So it can be presented as understandable, as explainable, as clear. 
It's to provide detailed information. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He is the exegesis of the Father. We can look at Jesus and know the Father and understand God and see how God thinks, how He moves, how He functions, how He did function among us in human flesh and what's important to Him, what matters to Him. You can find this by looking at Jesus. But there's more. There's more for you. See, Jesus not only explains God, He also reveals, walking in human flesh, how to live in a relationship with God. And this is one of the very cool things that that can confuse people at times. I've been asked, hey, if Jesus is God, why did he pray to God? Never stumbled over that thought? Why, if he is the Lord, is he kneeling down and talking to the Lord? It's a little confusing for us in our finite thinking. Why, if Jesus is God, did he suffer weaknesses? Why, if Jesus is God, was he able to bear sin and die at the hands of cruel men? I thought God was perfect. God is light. So if God is light, how could Jesus be God and still bear sin? I don't get it. And the answer to this question is, I don't know either. But I can tell you something. There is something masterful in the thinking of God to put on human flesh, to become fully human, and walk among us in relationship with himself as God so that we can see what it's like to live in relationship with him ourselves. So that we can see, hey, as a human being, I can pattern myself after Jesus. I can do what Jesus did and so learn to be in relationship with the Father. Remember Philippians 2.7, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Literally, Jesus laid aside his glory, his grandeur, his greatness, his eternal authority. He laid it aside, but in so doing... He becomes the perfect walking human example of how to do Deuteronomy 6.4. How to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How do you do that? You do it like Jesus did. You look at Jesus and you see by how he lived his life how to be in relationship with the Father. How to be in a love relationship with God. He shows us that. He explains the Father, but he explains to us how to be in relationship with the Father. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? You never in your life have to be in a time where you're wondering, how do I relate to God? If you ever have that question, open up the Gospels. Go to Jesus. How did Jesus relate to God? You have your answer in Christ. And one of the most powerful places this plays out for us, and the reason I bring it up this morning, is it plays out for us in the area of temptation. Temptation. We do not have a God who doesn't understand what it means to be tempted. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 tells us the following. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since, listen to this, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let me just get a show of hands. How many of you have struggled with temptation in the last month? Just a show of hands. And and how many of you have struggled with telling the truth about being tempted in the last month? (laughs) Temptation is the thing that just gets in there. It doesn't matter how long you've walked, by the way, with the Lord. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You will face temptation. You're going to be tempted to live, to act, to move, to to be in certain ways that are not of the Father. Satan will continue to come at you. You might think you're strong. And I've said this before. When you think you're strong, be careful because that's the most dangerous, vulnerable place. 
It's when you're weak that you're crying out to the Lord and saying, Please, Lord, help me. In my weakness, I've got the power of God on my mind and my strength. I'm thinking about me. And that's a scary place to be. Take heed. You think you're strong, lest you fall. Now remember, the Hebrew title of Deuteronomy is Devarim, Word. And this morning, before we get back to studying Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 1, which we're going to begin on Wednesday night, I want to give one more example of the powerful practicality of this book in our lives, especially related to temptation. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to spend the rest of the morning here. Matthew chapter 4. Those of you who are wondering whenever we are we going to get to the New Testament, we just got there. Matthew chapter 4. <laughs> Walk this through, watch how Jesus, God in the flesh, the exegesis of the Father, the one who explains the Father, also shows us and explains to us how to deal with temptation in our lives. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now wait a minute. Does that imply that Jesus, the perfect, holy, pure Son of God, that is, God with us, was temptable? Could He be tempted? Could God in all of His glory and perfection actually succumb to temptation? That's a frightening thought for us. Is Jesus temptable? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, listen, one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet was without sin. Tempted in all things as we are, and yet was without sin. Is Jesus truly temptable? Can God be tempted? He was led up to the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. By the devil. Listen, the word tempt has two specific meanings attached to it. Two meanings you need to understand, especially when you look at Jesus in the scriptures here. The first meaning of temptation is very simply to incite, to entice, or seduce to evil. This is how Satan functions. Satan tempts. He incites. And this literally cannot, cannot be true of Jesus. He cannot be incited or seduced to evil. Listen to what the Bible says about this. Hebrews 4.15 again says, He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Perfect in His response. Perfect in His reaction. John 14.30 Jesus Himself said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world, that is Satan, is coming, and he has nothing in me. Or we can put it in our modern day language, he's got nothing on me. He's got nothing he can get me with. There's nothing, there's no, nothing that he's seen in me that he can pull up and say, oh, what about this, what about that? He's got nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus, Jesus cannot be tempted as in incited, seduced, or enticed to do evil. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. The big difference between Jesus and you and I in our human flesh is Jesus never sinned. Not a single time. He couldn't sin. He was perfect. You might say, well, if he could not have been enticed to sin then he really wasn't tempted like me, was he? And the answer to that is, oh, he was tempted much more than any of us will ever understand. 
the temptations Christ faced were heavier, deeper, weightier than any temptation we will ever face in our lives. What do you mean? Well, the second, the second definition of temptation is to test. It's not just to be incited or seduced to evil. That's what Satan does. But there's also the idea of being tested. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus into the wilderness for this temptation? The Spirit did. The devil was out there. Spirit knew where the devil was. By the way, you know the devil is not omnipresent. You know Satan can't be everywhere at once. Which means if you know that you have a friend who's really dealing with a sin issue, and you're free because Satan's over there. No. <laughs> he also has millions of demons who are very busy at work in the world, and he is prowling about the world like a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he might devour. But he's not omnipresent. So in this example, we see the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that's where the devil was, out in the wilderness, wandering around, bummed out. <laughs> so the Spirit took Jesus out there. To tempt him? The Spirit was tempting Jesus? Wait a minute. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. Have you ever done that? Oh, the Lord's put me in this position where I've got to make a very difficult decision of whether or not I'm going to sin. God doesn't do that. Hear me clearly. God will never put you in a position where sin is one of your options just to see if you're going to fall down. That's not what he does. That's not how he functions. That's what Satan does. If you're in a place in your life where you're struggling with a sin issue, guess who is tempting you? It's Satan. It is never the Lord. But temptation also means to test, which is what we see in Genesis 22, verse 1. This is in the King James Version. It says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. James says, I'm not tempted by the Lord. Genesis says God tempted Abraham. So which is it? God didn't tempt Abraham. He tested him. Abraham's decision. God had him in a place where the decision Abraham had to make was a test of his faith. It was not a temptation, an incitement, a seduction to do evil. God, by the way, already knew Abraham's heart and already knew what Abraham was going to do. And so he placed him in that place of testing. The Lord doesn't tempt, but he does test. What's the difference? Listen to this great example. J. Vernon McGee writes about this in his commentary on Matthew. He says, one, Vernon when, uh, one, Vernon, one winter when I was a boy living out in a small town in West Texas, the Brazos River flooded and washed out a bridge for the Santa Fe Railroad. They were, we were without a train for a long time until finally workers came and built a new bridge. That process took a long time too, but one day when they had finished, they brought in two steam engines, stopped them on the bridge, and tied down their whistles. He went on to say, believe me, that was more whistling than we had ever heard in our little town, and all 23 of us ran down to see what was happening. <laughs> As we were standing around, one brave citizen went up to the engineer in charge with our question. What are you doing? And the engineer answered, testing the bridge. And our man said, are you trying to break it down? And the engineer almost sneered and said, of course not. We're testing it to prove it cannot be broken down. That's the temptation of Christ. The test of Satan to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt for you and I that he cannot be broken down. My friends, Jesus tempting, or better, his testing in the wilderness in his life, and most of all in the Garden of Gethsemane, were for you and I to see clearly that he could not be broken down. That we have a sure Savior. 
We have a solid Jesus that we can look at and trust and know that He is pure and know that He is perfect and know that He is strong and cannot be broken down. Yes, He was tested. He was tempted, as it were, by the devil. Proof positive to us that He cannot be broken down. Verse 2 tells us that after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, He then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Again, there comes a time after fasting when doctors will tell us that your hunger actually disappears. For those of you who have ever fasted, there's, there's a point in time, and it doesn't take too long, where suddenly you're, just, you're not really hungry anymore. But there's another point in time after, after fasting a longer period that suddenly you become hungry again. And doctors will say that's a very dangerous place to be because that indicates you are about to die. And that's where Jesus was when Satan came to tempt him. About to die. It tells us that after 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. He's on the verge, gang, physiologically, of dying when Satan shows up. And the devil says, so why not bake up a nice loaf of bread? What is Satan doing here? What is this first temptation truly all about? In essence, Satan is saying, just take matters into your own hands. In fact, if you're taking notes, what he's saying to Jesus is, doubt your father's provision. You've been out here for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you remember 40 days, 40 nights ago, Jesus, you were baptized. And it was a glorious moment. Kind of like it is for a new Christian, a new believer. A wonderful time. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father says from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Glory. Hallelujah. What a wonderful moment. And then he's out in the desert. Two days. Five days. Ten days. Twenty days. Where's the Lord? Where's the Lord? Forty days. I'm getting hungry. And Satan says, Better take care of it yourself, Jesus. God's not in this. You better take matters into your own hands. Doubt your Father's provision. This is what He loves to do to you and I. To you and me. He wants to make us doubt the provision of God. Is God really there for you? Is He there? Maybe He's not. Maybe He's left you. Maybe you're on your own. Good luck. Maybe you need to rely on your own intuition, your own human wisdom. Figure it out yourself, because God's obviously not there for you. Those are the words of the tempter. That's what Satan says. Doubt him. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Look at verse 4. He answered and said, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus responds, He is my provision. God is my sustenance. God is all the food I need. At a later time, Jesus will be walking with his apostles, stopping in a little town just outside of Samaria. They go into town to buy food. When they come back out, something spiritual, amazing, wonderful is going on. He's just told a woman that he's the Messiah. And they say, Lord, aren't you hungry? And he says, I got food that you don't even know about. I have sustenance in me that you don't understand. It's not bread alone. It is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is my strength. This is my sustenance. And of course he quotes Deuteronomy, the Devarim, the words. He quotes that book to make his point. That no material or physical experience will satisfy us in our spiritual walk with the Lord. So strike one. Satan is undaunted. He swings the bat again. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, 
If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting Scripture. Jesus is quoting Scripture. Satan picks up on this real quick. Oh, you're going to use Scripture. I can use Scripture too. And off he goes, and he throws it right back in Jesus' face. However, every time Satan quotes Scripture, he always twists it. And religion gang in the world that takes scripture and twists it. This is what Satan does. Yes, he knows scripture. And he will use it. Listen to the verse that he twists. It's Psalm 91 verse 11. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways that they will bear you up in their hands and that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Satan left something out and Jesus knows it. Satan left out this phrase, to guard you in all your ways, literally to keep you on the right road. To keep you on the right road. That's the part Satan left out. Oh, he'll take care of you no matter what you do. He's going to take care of you. No matter how you live your life, he's going to take care of you. No, he takes care of you to keep you on the right road. To nurture you in your faith, in your spiritual growth. And Jesus balances out Psalm 91 with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Look at verse 7. This is Deuteronomy 6, 16 that he quotes. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus takes both verses and says, look, there's balance here. You left out part, Satan. But you're also doing something that completely undermines your use of Scripture. You're putting God to the test. Don't do it. People, by the way, will attempt to shake you in your faith this exact same way. They'll say, doesn't the Bible say, judge not, that you not be judged? Scriptural quote. Well, I heard the Bible says Jesus was a son of man, so how can he be God? Scriptural quote. Half verses, words out of context, twisted sayings. That, my friends, is satanic Bible study, and the world uses it very well. Pulling up verses that they may have found or heard somewhere to disprove your faith. And it's out of context and it's not within the greater word of God. Which is why, I've said this before, I'll continue to say this, we are about the whole counsel of the word of God. Understanding the whole of scripture, not just one line here, one line there. That's where the cults get their greatest strength. Little pieces of truth woven throughout. Little bits and pieces. Not the whole truth. Some truth mixed with a lot of lies that looks kind of good. And this is what Satan does. Not only doubt your father's provision, but doubt your father's protection. Doubt your father's protection. And so he tries this on Jesus, and it doesn't work, so it works. So he squares up to the plate one more time. Two strikes. Verse 8, Satan comes right back at him again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, you might think, well, that's easy. It's a no-brainer. Look on this mountainside. He's showing Jesus the world. He says, hey, I'll give all of this to you. Well, he, it's not his to give. Wrong. It is his to give. Adam and Eve gave it up in the garden. They lost that title deed to the planet. They gave up authority and control that God had given to them in their sin and their violation of, of their relationship with God. They gave it up. So Satan does have authority over the world, does have the authority to give it to Jesus if he wants it, if he wants to do that. And so he says, here, I'll give it to you. All you have to do is worship me. Adam and Eve lost it, and the world has been the devil's playground ever since. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul calls Satan the God of this world. The God of this world. This world does belong to Satan. And it will belong to Satan, by the way, until the Lamb breaks the seals on this title deed of foreclosure. And if you want to understand more about that, order Revelation chapter 5. Pick up that CD and listen to it because we talk specifically about how that title deed was lost and biblically what's going on there. So what's the big temptation here? That he says, look, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the whole world if you'll just worship me. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 says the following. And don't miss this. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. Back in Psalm 2, we find out God had already promised this to Jesus. When Satan's trying to offer Jesus, God already said, Ask it of me and I will give it to you. The nations and the very ends of the earth, I will give to you my son. He promised world dominion. He promised world rule. He promised Jesus would be in that place of absolute authority over all things on planet earth. But listen, God's promise went through a very difficult place called Calvary. For Jesus to take hold of the promises of God, to assume his place of world dominion and world rule. He had to go through the cross. It was hard. It was painful. In fact, the most painful thing anybody would ever experience in the entire history of mankind. So what's Satan doing here? He's saying, doubt your father's promise. There's an easier way to get to the goal. You don't have to go through the cross. All you have to do, Jesus, is give me a little worship. Just kneel down right here. Two seconds. And the whole thing is yours and it's all done. And you can say bye-bye to Calvary. The third temptation. Dear fellowship, listen closely. Jesus never promised us a rose garden. He never promised that in this life there'd be an easy way. What Jesus promised us if there will be hard times, persecutions, self-sacrifice, and the bearing of our own cross before the promises are fulfilled. In fact, the very garden where Jesus prayed brought blood to his brow. It was the hard choice, the hard decision. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 39 says after and all these people talking about this great hall of faith these great people of faith says having gained approval through faith they did not receive what was promised. Men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob men like Moses Joshua men like David did not receive what was promised he says because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. And so Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. Here in verse 10 he says, Go Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. This is loving God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. I will only go the way of the Father regardless of the cost. No matter what it means in my life, no matter what it means I have to give up, no matter how difficult the challenges ahead may lie, I will only go the way of the Father. Can you say that? 
Because that is saying, I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. With everything that's in me, I will put Him first, and I will not choose another way. I will only walk the way that He calls me, no matter how hard that is. No matter how much of a struggle that is. No matter how difficult that is. I prayed on them. Friday with a gentleman who is struggling right now, big time, I would ask that you say prayers for John. Let's give you his first name. Please be in prayer for John because this weekend and on into this next week, he is detoxing. He's made that decision to go through a detox process. He is a believer. He loves the Lord. And he wants to live for the Lord. But he's strung out. And so many people get to that place and you've got this, this choice. The temptation, Satan says, you know what? All you need today is just, just a drink. Just one drink. And you'll get through the day. And you can go to church. And you can go to Bible study. And you can be involved with church things. That's great. That's fine. Just take the drink. It's easier for you. It'll make it easier on you. All you need tonight before you go to bed is just a couple of Vicodin. Just take those. I know you've been taking it every night for the last, you know, several months, but just, just tonight. Just go ahead and take them tonight. It'll help you sleep, and in the morning you'll be refreshed. You can get up, you can go about the work of the Lord. It's an easier way. It's an easier way. My friend John has decided to go through Calvary, to go through the cross, to bear a cross, which is much more painful and much more difficult. The Lord isn't about the easy way. He's about the relational way. He is about the way where He can carry us. When we find ourselves, that as, as John spoke just the other day, i got nothing here. I'm at the bottom of the barrel. And it struck me, the bottom of the barrel is the best place to be with the Lord because that's the place where only His strength can be at work, not mine. That's the place where it's God doing His business in me, not me thinking, Lord, come alongside me and be my co-pilot. That's the most bogus bumper sticker I've ever seen in my life. God is my co-pilot. Great, I guess you're not going to let Him control your life, are you? Stay right there, Lord. That's good. Man. You're, doing, you're doing fine. Yeah, I know you see the map. I got it. I got it. I got it. Whoa, take over. Okay, no, I got it again. Thank you. But isn't that how so many of us live our lives? I'm in the seat of authority. I'm in the seat of control. And Lord, help me out when I need you. When the clouds are thick. When the instruments aren't reading right. Help me out, Lord. But, but then go back to your seat because I got it. I got it. Aren't I doing great, Lord? And that's the devil saying, doubt your father's provision and doubt his promise. Doubt what he can do in your life. Doubt him. Take care of it yourself. There's an easier way to the goal. Well, Jesus just quotes scripture after scripture after scripture, quoting it correctly, quoting it powerfully. I believe, by the way, personally, that Jesus was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy when he was in the wilderness those 40 days. I think that's a scroll that he must have tucked away and brought with him carried under his arm out into the wilderness because these are the verses that were just coming to mind that he was just using in direct combat with Satan. At the very end of this it says the devil left him and behold the angels came and began to minister to him. I want to read you Luke's version of that last verse. Luke 4.13 says when the devil had finished every temptation he left him until an opportune time. In other words Satan struck out but he will be back up to bat. Satan will strike out with you from time to time in your life when you are relying on the strength of the Lord and not the strength of yourself. He's going to strike out wonderfully. And as he goes away, you realize you have overcome by God's power some major temptation in your life. You can glory in that and say hallelujah, but he's coming back up to bat. He's going to come at you again. 
and he will come at you again and again and again and he's going to say doubt your father's provision you don't have the money to pay for what you need to pay for right now doubt your father's provision he can't really take care of you there's got to be another way refinance the house sell the car do whatever you have to do because God's not really going to cover you this time doubt his provision doubt his protection God is protection. Uh, you know, this, this is a dangerous place that I am. I've got to cover myself and my family. Doubt his promise. He really doesn't mean to get me through to the other side. The tempter's going to come, gang. But with you and me, he will entice and he will incite and he will seduce for the sake of evil. So how do I respond? One more verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Such as is common to man. In other words, welcome to the boat that we are all in together. There's nothing you have been tempted by in your life that's not common. That's another lie of Satan, by the way, that your temptation is different than everybody else's. Yours is the tough one. No. Yours is just like everybody else's. We have all been through it. In some fashion or another, we've all been tempted. It's common to man. But Paul goes on and he says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And the question is, will we see the way of escape? Another hint about being tempted here, by the way, in your life, you're in a situation that is very difficult and the temptation is strong and you're seeing no way out, it's of the the devil. It's Satan. God provides a way. God provides a way. There's always a way with the Lord and if you're in a place where you can't see a way, you flee that place. You get out of that place. You don't stay in that place thinking, where's the way? Where's the way? Where's the way? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Jesus, by way of exegesis, provides detailed information on how to read the escape route. Let me give you this very quickly here. We're almost done. If you were to ask me again, what book of the Bible Jesus was meditating on in the wilderness, I'd take it straight to Deuteronomy. Now again, Jesus is the Word incarnate, but he was also in the Word as he walked in the flesh, which is why every response to temptation was Scripture. It was the Word of God. Having the Word in you gives you that strength. So, three things to do here. Quickly, stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. Speak out the Word. And submit to the Word. Thinking about what happened in this temptation of Christ. Say in the word. Jesus responded every time with scripture. That was his sword. He fought with it. And as I said last week, being a part of a teaching church does you no good if you're not receiving teaching. If you're not in the word, it doesn't do you any good to say I'm part of that fellowship, that body where the Bible is taught. So stay in the Word and use it. Have it available as your arsenal. That's what Jesus did. Regarding the first temptation, the second temptation, Jesus speaks out the Word. He actually does that in all three, but of course Satan speaks out the Word too, doesn't he? And twists it. So here's the key. It's not just staying in the Word. It's not just being willing to speak out the Word. It's submitting to the Word. And that's key. Both Jesus and Satan knew the scriptures. Both Jesus and Satan spoke the scriptures, but only Jesus submitted to the scriptures. Only Jesus said, I will do only what the Lord tells me to do. And this is the tough part, doing it, as opposed to just reading it or hearing it. 
Okay, Jesus wasn't using the word like a magic charm. He wasn't using the word like an incantation to cause uh, Satan to flee. He was rather committing himself to obey it completely and in the obedience of the word, that's where the power lies. That's where the power is. And so James says in Deuteronomy 1.21, In humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And so I read to you one more time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Shema. The Shema. Hear, hear, and it's immediately followed by action, love. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord. Hear, O Bridge Fellowship, love the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the power that it brings in our lives. Thank thank you, Lord, that it is like a a sharp two-edged sword that cuts and divides and makes clear the path that we are to take. Father, I pray that you would pour your word out into us and that it would seep in and become so much a part of us that we could speak it freely and easily. But Father, truly my prayer this morning is our great desire is that we just wouldn't be a people who can speak your word. We wouldn't just be a people who study your word week in and week out. But Lord, we learn what it means truly to submit to everything you've called us to. Not for the sake of keeping rules, Lord, but for the sake of relationship with you. May we submit to your word.